and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 67 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's podcast episode, I am incredibly excited and humbled to share with all of you my interview with legendary Walt Disney Imagineer, Bob Gurr. For those of you who don't know Bob, well, you're going to get to learn a lot more about him in this podcast episode. But for those of you who do, I'm sure my excitement level matches what Bob has done for the Walt Disney Company and actually for well beyond the Walt Disney Company as well. Bob has a quote that I think is really appropriate to describe everything that he's done. He said, if it moves on wheels at Disneyland, I probably designed it. And that's incredibly true because Bob worked at Walt Disney Imagineering as early as when it was called Wed Enterprises. He was hired by Walt Disney, worked with Walt on countless projects at Disneyland and in preparation for Walt Disney World. And he worked with so many legendary Imagineers like E.L. Gracie, Raleigh Crump, Blaine Gibson, Harriet Burns, Marty Sklar, the list goes on and on. And he designed vehicles for attractions like the Cars at Autopia, the vehicles for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, the submarines at 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Matterhorn bobsleds at Disneyland. He designed the monorail over at Disneyland and at Walt Disney World. And then even beyond working at Disney, when he left the company in 1981, he went on to do so much more and is still active to this day in the year 2020 at the age of 88. And this discussion is filled with so many stories about his work with Walt Disney on Disneyland, his work for Walt Disney World, on the 1964 World's Fair. He also, by the way, designed the animatronic Mr. Lincoln over at uh, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. I mean, this guy has done so much and it was incredibly exciting and humbling again to have the chance to talk with him. And I am so excited to share his interview with all of you. Of course, at the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of the show. So, grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this very special episode of the Imagineer Podcast. So my guest on the show today, I feel like needs no proper introduction because I'm sure most of you listening know Bob Gurr. He is a an, a legendary Disney Imagineer and worked directly with Walt Disney. I am incredibly excited to have this discussion with him today and welcome to the show, Bob. Hey, welcome to uh, everybody out there in Imagineer uh, podcast land. Uh, Shared by Matt, and Matt is now going to attempt to ask me some serious questions, and I'll uh, I'll give him some unpredictable answers. So uh, away we go. I love unpredictability, and uh, hopefully these answers, these questions aren't too serious. Some of them might be, but I've got some fun ones in here as well. Uh, I actually want to start with. I feel like this is where a lot of people start. You have a quote 
that says, if it moves on wheels at Disneyland, I probably designed it. And like I said in the beginning, most people who are listening to the show probably know who you are very well. But for those who might not know who Bob Gurr is, could you give us an idea of some of the projects you worked on or vehicles you designed that many of those frequent guests to Disneyland or to Walt Disney World might recognize? Well, to answer that properly, I've had probably three, maybe four careers, and each person that knows about one career has no idea of the other careers. First one was automobile designing at age 20 in, in Detroit for the Ford Motor Company. Second one was uh, working for Walt Disney for uh, 27 years up until the time they uh, fired me. And I started my own company, Gur Design Incorporated. So there comes, um, um, you know, career number uh, three. And then uh, after I closed up Gur Design 20 years ago, I'm now in... Um, Hopefully she's stuck in uh, the internet. I've, I'm stuck on Facebook. My my um, uh, uh, account on uh, you know all this stuff on the. I'm up like what thirteen thousand uh, hits on Instagram, and it's still climbing. So uh, I'm probably ready for my fifth career by now. <laughs> but getting back, yeah, getting back something some specific on Disney. I did about 100 projects for Walt, uh, and then um, I did about 150 projects for everybody else beyond uh, Disney. And that's what startles people. They'll wind up asking me, what did you do for Walt? And then somebody says, well, didn't you know Bob worked for Michael Jackson with doing custom lighting? Didn't you know he sinks ships in Las Vegas? Didn't you know he did... Uh, Closing ceremonies at the Olympics in Los Angeles with a mysterious helicopter that people are still arguing about. So, yeah, there's such a variety that, in retrospect, all the quiet jobs I did were for Walt. So, um, starting with, well, I did Autopia cars, then uh, did uh, antique cars on Main Street, you know, like the Omnibus, Fire Engine, uh, little antique cars. I did the little viewliner train. I designed the excursion train for the railroad, designed the uh, track for the track and the cars for the Matterhorn, designed the submarine, did the Mark One, Mark Two, Three, and Four monorail, did um, uh, several more Autopia cars, uh, motorboat crews, designed Abraham Lincoln, all kinds of stuff. It's just a whole bunch of stuff, big jobs, little jobs. Yeah, you said it. I mean, the list of those projects you worked on are things that most people know, even if they are not Disney fans, that you've created. And I, like you said, even the fact that most people don't know that you did projects outside of Disney as well, which we'll definitely talk about, I'm sure surprises a lot of people. You mentioned in the beginning that you were you worked for Ford, and I know that you were and still are very much a car guy, uh, as much as an aviation guy as well. Uh, when you were originally growing up, going to school, when you went to college, was your mindset that you were going to end up working for Ford and that was going to be your career or did you have aspirations beyond that? No, by age of five, I was completely enamored with uh, cars and airplanes. That was a lot of the two things that were just really struck me as a, as a little kid, you know, finally understanding you're a live sentient being and you look up in the sky and says, whoa, what is that? I want to know more about that. You know, and parked at the curb, there's all these 
things. Oh, those are cars. Oh, my gosh. Now, you know, so that really got my attention really, really quick. And it's been uh, totally consistent ever since. Uh, going through uh, junior high and high school, I was always interested in art. And I was interested in drafting, you know, the very common artistic type of things. And I always uh, drew pictures of cars and airplanes, you know, from uh, the fourth grade uh, on up. Had an architecture teacher that uh, when I would finish my architectural uh, assignments, he'd say, "Go, oh, go ahead, and uh, you got extra time. Go ahead and draw some cars for yourself." So that was a that was a nice way for an instructor to, you know, let you goof off on your own time. And of course, he said, "If you want to buy drive, design cars, go down to Art Center School," which I did. Then graduated and uh, went to Ford Motor Company, and I worked there for two weeks and decided. It was a dead-end job in Ford for me to leave California, go to Detroit. So I just blew a four-year college in two two weeks. But within the year, I decided to return to California, formed my own little tiny company called uh, R.H. Gurr Industrial Design. And within a year, I got a call from uh, the Disney studio. So for about a month and a half, uh, Disney was a client. I sent them a bill every every week. And then uh, Walt strongly suggested, you better work here. I got a lot of work for you. And there we started. That's incredible. And it's funny that you would, you know, like you said, you worked for Ford and I realized, you know, I'm going to just not do what I went to school for. And it's it's important to realize it then, uh, you know, it, it's probably better to figure that out even before, but still, uh, I'm sure those experiences helped in everything you did after that point. Uh, I'm sure... You, you teed me up to talk about Walt, and I definitely want to talk about Walt, but here's my unpredictability, because the other thing I want to definitely talk about is uh, before you knew Walt, you grew up with Dave Iwerks, who is the son of Ub Iwerks, who's another really famous uh, you know, legend in the whole Disney uh, you know, company history. What was it like growing up with Dave? Did you have any idea what the Iwerks family did or, you know, what Ub specifically did for Disney? Um, you know, how aware were you of the, the you know, I guess, history with, within that family? Well, they lived in um, right near Studio City, California, and I had four paper routes during uh, World War II you know, from 1943 on up, and he was a customer on one of my uh, one of my four paper outs. And um, there was always an interesting car um, in their driveway or out in the street in front. So I had an occasion to stop and look at it. And then as time went on, I noticed uh, there's uh, a guy in my high school in my uh, high school. Uh, he had a car and, and it was always in front of that house. And I thought, oh, that's uh, that's that's Dave, Dave Iwerks, and then we became fast friends for years and years and years. You know, we go rabbit hunting together, deep sea fishing to, together, and um, he had an older brother, uh, Don Iwerks, and I'm talking about Dave. Dave was a little bit younger. He's my age. We were in the same class, but uh, their father was Ub. And I thought, gee, what a weird name! Just UB. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah. And he and he had a little he had a little machine shop on the side of the garage, and they had had guns in there. He's very precise with stuff. So whenever I'd go over and hang around at their house, uh, you know, which is like every week when you're in high school, uh, when Ub would be there, he'd, he'd look and say, Bob, uh, let me show you something. He'd like to have me 
come into his little shop and show me what he's doing. Um, I knew he worked at Disney, but I had never asked him, what do you do? Um, so I never, I knew him very well, but I didn't inquire as to what he did. And to me, it was a great shock when I went to the studio. Um, and then I went over to this little process lab and I says, oh, you didn't tell me what you did here. You didn't tell me you're the inventor of everything here. And he just sort of smiled and just sort of looked at me and it was like, He's just a, a very, very understated uh, fellow, never bragged or anything. But as the years went by, uh, doing some projects with him for Disneyland, I could see, oh, man, what an absolutely brilliant guy. And, of course, his son, um, Don, the older son, of course, he uh, created uh, iWorks Entertainment. Of course, he just wrote a book about his uh, dad, which I got here. I'm still trying to find time to get through uh, through it and then of course dave turned out to be a terrific uh, black and white um photographer he he did a portrait of uh, president kennedy one time and uh he worked in the studio w with his dad uh, along with don who ran the um, camera department in the same machine shop where i worked and our boss was a fellow by the name of roger Brogy senior and we all um worked on, under him for walt Incredible. It's pretty funny. I've heard that Ub was very humble and, and quiet, actually. And it's not surprising in a way that you he didn't share too much about what he did. And I'm sure that, like you said, was definitely a shock when, uh, when you saw exactly how much he did at Disney. Um, yeah, because we uh, when I was over at the house, you know, uh, you know, I'd see uh, see that he's got an interesting car, and he says, "Oh, let me show you a car. I got a two. Uh, I got a Triumph two thousand, and I bought it from a guy who modified it. Put a Studebaker V eight in it. And he says, uh, get in. I'll give you a ride in it.' You know, and then of course a couple of years later, he's got a first the very first Corvette, and he says, "Come on, Bob, let me give you a ride in it." So I was more in tune with him to do with cars than anything to do with. Um, you know, him being an artist and doing uh, Mickey Mouse or being a, a terrific uh, a technical uh, inventor of things. We were, just, we were just car guys. That's awesome. That makes sense that you both had that connection. So that would be what you would bond over. And that's wonderful to hear. Um, so like I said, I, I wanted to just kind of divert a little bit there because uh, iWorks yeah. is as big of a name as, or should at least be as big of a name as uh, as Disney. But of course, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Walt a little bit. Do you remember uh, the first time you met Walt? Was it that time that he said you should be going over and doing more with what enterprises or was it before then? No, no, I had been asked to go out to the... Um studio and um uh, backing up just a little bit yeah uh in the previous weeks before being asked to go to the disney studio uh i'd be at the iWorks house maybe uh once a month or every other month on sunday afternoons the uh, typical american family after church sunday dinner uh they were all, would invite me uh, to the t their table and occasionally uh Ub would have a, a little 16 millimeter black and white film of current events on the back lot that he would show us. And one of them was this chassis of a, of a little car, didn't have a body on it. And um, it had uh, Kirk Douglas driving another little car, a kind of an ugly green car. And it said the word Disneyland. I thought, oh, that's the same thing of the, I saw in the LA Times. There's a drawing of an amusement park. 
And then, of course, when I get the call to go over to the studio uh, on a very short notice, I thought, do you don't suppose that L.A. Times picture of that amusement park that I thought, oh, I'd love to go there if somebody ever built a thing like that. Did it have anything to do with the little car that I saw at at the iWorks lunch because it had no body and I'm a body designer? Well, that was a good guess because when I walked in the door, Dirk Irvine, who is a fellow managing all the uh, designers of Disneyland, walked me out to the back lot. And there's this little chassis, this, uh, this little car. And I thought, oh, I know exactly what they want. And I, I can see exactly um, how I can do that. Immediately got into a conversation. It was, you know, like a middle of the weekday. And I said, oh, I'll come back on Saturday with some pictures. So the second Saturday, I, I came back and uh, we went out on Saturday morning and the little chassis was sitting there. And, um, you know, when guys, car guys talk, you know, you put your foot on the tire and then you put your elbow on your knee and then you kibitz about stuff. And we had a spare wheel available. And this older guy walks up, kind of ratty looking, unshaven. And I thought, oh, he must be a father of one of the night guards or something. And, uh, you know, we talked for 15 minutes. And then when the guy walked off, everybody said, see you, Walt. And I thought, oh, ooh, that's Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what he looked like. Uh, and so I wasn't introduced. And then the, the following Saturday, same deal. I bring in more drawings. We're back out there looking at the little chassis, and uh, Walt walks by and uh, and uh, says, uh, "Ask me some questions about the books I'd written." And I begin to be puzzled. I thought, "How did he know I wrote books starting at age 19?" And it didn't take very long. You know, a couple of weeks later, I thought, "Who turned me into Walt Disney?" It must have been. Um, Ward Kimball, who I knew um, very well, was one of his crazy an animators. And the uh, same thing, car club. You know, I'd been out to Ward's house. I'd driven his fire engine in a, in a parade one time. Uh, and he was a good friend of the publisher of my books. So there, that's how that connection got going. But the lesson was, Walt never gets introduced to you. And you don't get introduced to him, but he's already got you pegged because of the sort of the... Um, inquiry, research, or surveillance, or whatever it is that Walt just automatically did with people. Um, and it, it kind of floored me to have him ask about something that I didn't know how he, how he knew about it, and I'd certainly never been introduced to him. You can see it's so informal on the back lot with Walt. That's, that's just the way it was. Yeah, it's incredible. I've heard some of those stories before, and it's amazing. And you're right, I mean, now we take for granted the fact that we pretty much know what everybody looks like because of social media and, and the internet. And even if you were to go for a job, you could search for who that hiring manager is and find their picture and everything about them. But that is just the modern age we live in. Back then, it would have been difficult to, to do that um, You know, if, if you didn't. Of course, Walt was, was famous, but uh, you know, if you don't know what he looks like, it's, it's not as easy to, to be able to point him out. Um, now, obviously, the, the informality in the back lot is, is one of the things I know people loved about Walt. Uh, what do you think made him a really great boss? Because a lot of people who worked for Walt um, or worked with Walt talked about him being this amazing leader. What do you think it is about Walt that made him such a terrific boss? 
Uh, have you got about five hours? <laughs> I could, I could <laughs> I tell <do>. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With some of the key things, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're working with some, somebody, you know, and then uh, sometimes you, you admire them automatically or you learn to admire them later when time goes by. And then when they're gone, after you, you, you have a retrospective look and you could see all these characteristics that you were working with him uh, about, but you didn't realize their their importance until you get the bigger picture of how organizations uh, uh, work together. Right. Um, but the the key thing was which is kind of hard to explain to people. You got to remember, people read about Walt Disney, and then he's treated with such reverence that I think people see him more as Walt Disney the God. Right. Where, let's say, the people that work with him, uh, you know, fairly close to his level of, say, being an artist or being, uh, you know, a vice president or something, they saw him much more as uh, a, a leading co-worker. Um, then everybody else sort of in, in the middle uh, because of his uh, great informality and always walking around and asking questions. Um you you knew he was a god because you know who else in the world's got seven um, seven Oscars you know in different sizes, right. but at the same time but at the same time your conversations on a daily basis anywhere on the lot whether it's in your office or over at his office or something is one on one complete um, candor and friendliness. So in other words, it's it's like there's 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 drastically difference between two waltz in, in your mind in a way you you respect that he is a god to to the world but you also respect the fact that uh you're working together on the same stuff and having the same conversations uh even to the point of informality i hadn't been there more than uh, maybe two or three months and uh, we had to go over and take a look at uh, the clay model for building the first Autopia car. And rather than shipping a model, which was kind of heavy to get it to the studio for approval, uh, Walt says, well, where is it? I said, oh, it's uh, Joe's garage. And he says, well, let's get in the car and drive over there. Just as informal as that. You know, he got his brother-in-law, got, we got in his old Cadillac and drove about five miles. You know, went and looked at it, approved, and went back to the studio. You know, in future years, we were looking for another um, industrial designer to come to uh, that I could train. And Walt says, well, that's, that's your school. Let's go get a car. You drive me down there. Just as informal as could be. Uh, a lot of people, they, they don't believe you when they you try to describe a, the side of Walt that we know that that. People uh, who admire him around the world have no idea that he's like that. Yeah, the other, uh, yeah, no, sorry, yeah some of the other, yeah, some of the other things that were terribly important. Uh, how we worked with people. Typically, um, an MBA trained executive, even an entrepreneur, entrepreneur type, uh, typically is expected to issue orders or uh, be quite formal about starting, uh, you know, new projects in a company. Uh, Walt was not like that at all. He, because he's walking around all the time and having little chats here and there, uh, he'd ask people about something. And uh, it was just off the wall. Like uh, he'd say, uh, I'd see him in the hall, and he says, say, Bobby, we're thinking of doing, and then he'd say what it was. He says, uh, do you think a thing like that would ever work? 
what he just did, he's planting a little seed for you to think about. And then, of course, we, we find out later he's going around the back lot uh, dropping these seeds on everybody else. And then pretty soon the everybody else's, we're all talking to each other and seeing the good and bad points of a, of, of a potential project. So guess what? By the time he starts to get a little bit serious about it, he's already got dozens of people thinking about it. That is an entirely different way that uh, companies that have, you know, fully, fully trained managers uh, do. Um, so he was always asking. And then when a project's underway, you got something going along. He didn't really uh, criticize it uh, unless something was really not very good. He'd look at something and he'd say, well, uh, say, have you ever thought about, and then he kind of tapped the, tap his finger on the drawing on the wall. And he said, do you ever think about doing it this way? And of course you didn't. And because all of a sudden your eyes were open to a new idea that he had. And then, you know, and then a week later we come back, look at it. And he says, yeah, it's, it's coming along pretty good. But what if, and he keeps adding more of these little thoughts, but he's not telling you he didn't like it. That is a crucial thing because uh, let's say you're with a group of people and your coworkers, and you're the one that has the bright idea, which turns out to be dumb. You hate to be in a meeting where the boss looks at you and says, that's stupid. You do that again, I'll fire you. Well, guess what? You just, you're just killing a creative person. But take it the way Walt would do it when something didn't work. You know, since we lose money and, uh, and time, what are we going to do now? And we're all cringing, and Walt looks at it and says, well, well, we sure as heck know what, uh, what doesn't work. So uh, why, why don't we get cracking here and see if we can find a, find a way to make this thing really work. And the sigh of relief that everybody would have, like, oh, my God, it was my stupid idea, but, it's, it, but it can be fixed. Uh, and he didn't kill us, and he didn't fire us. We're still interested in answering his question when he says, you know, a couple of months later, say, Bobby, we're thinking of doing this now. You are free with, to speak up with your idea rather than cringing because you got chopped because you, you had a stupid uh, uh, suggestion last time. That, to me, is the most crucial thing any manager can ever do with creative people. And Walt did that in, just naturally and inherently, just, just like that. Yeah, I think the term you used, the idea of a leading coworker, definitely sums that up, that he... He seems like more of a a mentor and someone who's very solution oriented rather than problem oriented. And I can see how that would foster this environment of creativity and why everyone who worked with him wanted to please him and do great things for him. And it's uh, I love that that way of managing. Uh, you know, people who would otherwise be subordinates, you know, in a traditional organization, uh, almost as being a, a peer and as a, a source of guidance. Yes, this, uh, the, the net effect over time was that, um, you know, when you talk to people, even years after Walt's gone, people uh, would do anything for him. In other words, sort of a byproduct of his day in, day out working with people it, it allowed people to develop a sense of um, of uh, such loyalty, such unusual loyalty, uh, that anything that uh, Walt needed while we're working on stuff, you would really 
put on your thinking cap and really how to figure things out, how to really make stuff really be- better. And, and just, we always had to express, just do it right. You know, don't worry about what something costs, just do it right. Uh, and, and then that meant a lot of people, um, you know, they automatically would just do their absolute best for him because they, they were new, knowing they were doing it for Walt. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you teed me up there as well, thinking about how to solve these challenging uh, problems or ideas that Walt might have presented or that perhaps you even came up with. Was there anything that you found to be particularly challenging or the most challenging, either a specific project or a skill set when it came to building these creations for Walt? (laughs) <laughs> you just used the word skill set. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing that Walt did with so many people, you'd have a skill set, you know, in your line of interest or your line of training or wherever you worked before. It didn't do you a bit of good. Walt would ask you to do something you never thought about, never done before, had no experience with, and getting over the momentary shock of, you want me to do what? I've never done that. Um, and, and, and he was serious because he kind of understood what people might be able to do, even though they've never done it. Happened all the time. Uh, everybody knows that, uh, you know, uh, Exitensio, you know, he's an artist, background artist, writer and everything. And Walt says, uh, X, I want you to write the music for the pirate ride. Walt, I don't write music. I don't know anything about music. Well, if you have any problem, go down and speak to George Bruns. He'll help you with the, with the keys you got to write out to make the music. Don't worry about it. And then he walks away. <laughs> so uh, X has got to go write music. Uh, I'm a car guy. Everything I did, as you mentioned, if it had wheels, I did it. And uh, in 1963, he shows me uh, an Abraham Lincoln that uh, was built in secret and it doesn't work. And he's asking me, oh, Bobby, I want you to design the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have no training in physiology. I don't know how the human body works. I don't know where all the parts go. And I've got a very short period of time that I got to do it. Um, we had a wonderful uh, uh, executive there, uh, John Hench. He just uh, knew so much about movies and color and art. And Walt said, John, I want you to learn about restaurants. We might build a restaurant for a tiki room we're thinking of. And and um, and he said, well, I don't know anything about restaurants. And Walt said, well, John, it's time you, time you did. And then Walt Turner walked away. <laughs> He'd do that all the time to people. Even when he asked me to start the monorail, 1959, uh, we're going to open a monorail. So this is October 58. Um, he'd been looking for a monorail company to work with, found one, and he brought me pictures of a rather ugly-looking German monorail, which I'd never seen that type of machine before ever in my life. And he gives me the pictures, and he says, this is not very good-looking. I want you to get started right away on ours. And then he walks out. Think of that. He's asking me to start a monorail, which I never knew existed until about two minutes before the conversation <laughs> started. I'm looking at the pictures and I can see, yeah, it's typical German, uh, old German warplane type styling. 
And I could see, oh, boy, I'd like to make a good-looking one of those. And uh, within a couple of days, I'd made a sketch and came back and made a bigger drawing of the sketch, and that's the Disneyland 1959 monorail. But stop and think what that would do to most people. Uh, Marty used to talk about uh, a white piece of paper with nothing on it, and the would affect people in two ways. Some people are timid or unsure of themselves. They'd be terrified to do something on a white sheet of paper, whether it's a drawing or words or whatever you're going to do. And the other kind of person, uh, like a lot of us, is, oh, a white sheet of paper with no instructions? Oh, boy, I am going to have fun. So that's that's a simplified difference between um, the two different categories of people. And Walt made sure he collected the people that saw that white sheet of paper as uh, their, their blank slate. They could do anything they want and just be creative, creative as all get out. And uh, so I'm that type. And that's why going back to the first part of your question, challenge. Uh, I get this question constantly. It's almost as if people ask you, they Say, boy, if you did if you did things at work, uh, didn't you have a challenge? Or they assume you had a challenge. Exactly. And I have to say, yeah, and I, I have to say, no, no, no. It's, it's, you know, the stuff I do and have, have done, you know, 250 projects and 40, uh, 45 years, and none of them ever repeated. They were all different. So a formal education would have never done me any good, you know, because everything's going to be different. Uh, the minute somebody um, asked me to look at something they're going to do, uh, uh, I would always see four or five different ways you could do it. So if there was a challenge, the challenge would be, um, well, which one of the different directions we should go might pay off the soonest. And then I'd start in that direction. And of course, sometimes uh, my first thought was, oops, that's got an Achilles heel. That will not work. And I said, well, okay, this other idea, let, uh, let me try that one for a while. So I actually had um, choices uh, where other people I can appreciate. They had, they had challenges because uh, especially if there are people that are uh, people that are, I find people that are, are formally trained, particularly uh, engineer, mechanical engineers. They're uh, they're kind of the worst of the bunch because they do everything by rote and formula and calculation, uh, which is the opposite of art. And I wound up doing my de facto engineering from the eye of art and and knowing that I've never had any engineering uh, education whatsoever in my life. I learned it as I went. So I'm I'm in a tough spot to try to answer your, your question, which is a very normal question. So I apologize for taking 10 minutes to uh, harangue you for one question. Not at all. We got a lot of great stories in the process and you can feel free to shoot down any question you want. <laughs> I just, I've, got, I've got plenty of backups. <laughs> um, one of the creations I did want to talk about actually, because we've talked about it out on the show before, is one that still exists and is still being used in many different ways, which is the Omnimover system. Um, was that something that you came up with just on your own or was it again a challenge that Walt had presented to you um you know where did you sort of get the inspiration for that system of of uh conveyance it was strictly an off-the-cuff conversation with John Hench in his office um 
sometime, um, oh, um, summer, I think, of 64, after the World's Fair had opened, because, uh, as you know, I designed the Ford Magic Skyway with all those uh, cars uh, and, and the two different tracks, but uh, I enjoyed the General Motors ride, and then there was another one, I think, by AT&T that was like a continuous train of vehicles. Um, just the idea of it uh, made a lot of sense, but the way the two of them were executed wasn't all that wasn't all that hot. And just sitting there with John, and we were talking about uh, how we might tell stories better in uh, attractions. And our general understanding was that uh, that attractions which have moving boats or moving vehicles, you can control the guest experience a lot better, and you can usually get a much higher uh, theor theoretical uh, ride capacity uh, throughput per hour. And so that was kind of the basis of this conversation. And I said, you know what, John? Um, we could make a track and put a chassis on it, but instead of having the body bolted to the chassis, I, I could put it on a post, and then so it's like we got a seat, and then I could make the car body turn right and left or, or tip forward or tip backwards, uh, independent of the chassis, which is, you know, with the wheels, which has to be on the track. And uh, if we did that, we could, uh, the art directors would like it because when you go out of a vehicle and you're going from uh, show segment to show segment, you lose a lot of time going from scene one to scene two to scene three, particularly where you're turning right and left. All you're doing, basically, you're looking at the back of the head of the people in the car in front of you, which is not very good. But what if um, we could turn the people in this little uh, uh, seat and we could turn it directly to the scene and then, you know, maybe swing around quickly to a scene on the other side as the vehicle turn? We do two things. We uh, give the point of view of the of the viewer in the car uh, right into the scene and then we're not staring rigidly at the back of the car ahead um and at the same time we cut a few seconds of segue time between scenes that way if you got to ride say something that's eight minutes uh the dead time between scenes we cut that way down and we add the, the guest experience uh to longer uh, seconds in each one of the scenes and he had a candied apple sitting there. You've seen them all the time. You got this plastic candied apple and there's a stick sticking out of the top of the thing. And it looks like it got melted something off the apple. So it's sitting on your desk. Right. I just picked it up and I, and I twirled it. And I says like this, John, you said we can turn it like that. And people, uh, uh, you know, the art directors love to do it that way. And I said that we can move a lot of people uh, because of the, the train of vehicles. And we can look in all directions. And at the time, I was a, a pilot flying airplanes, and, and a radio navigational feature is called Omni Range. Omni meaning all. And in the case of Omni Range, it's, it's, it looks it's 360 degrees all the way around. So I says, uh, yeah, we can look in different directions and keep moving people. Oh, this is an Omnimover. Uh, I just coined the two words in the middle of that conversation. Well, months later, when we were working on the project, um, the word Omnibover had been used for so long, we were still using it as a placeholder to get a real name. Um, and it's dangerous to start a job with a placeholder because everybody might get used to it, and then you can't change it. It's the same way People Mover. When Walt wanted to do the People Mover, he just called it People Mover. Uh, and Goodyear was going to figure out a name they wanted to call it later because they're going to sponsor it. But it turned out People Mover 
got into the, the colloquial use too soon. <laughs> so look, look at it. Now in history, here we've got people mover. We're stuck with a placeholder name all over the world. And the same way with the Omnimover. Uh, Omnimover to the point now is anytime somebody sees a bunch of vehicles all moving together, they call it Omnimover, and it's <laughs> not Omnimover. Omnimover is a very specific machine. Uh, we got a bunch of them, of course. We used them for a lot of different attractions. Everybody remembers it on the Haunted Mansion. No, they forget it was a voyage to inner space it was first. That's right. Uh, or, or I designed. So I get a kick out of Somebody comes to me and says, oh, we just saw a new Japanese Omnimover. Oh, you did. Well, take a second look at it. It's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm going to ask you, I says, could you give me a, uh, a facial tissue? And you'll say, oh, you what? You want a Kleenex? <laughs> See what happened? Um, the word Omnimover slipped into being a generic word for anybody's product. <laughs> it's crazy. It is. It is pretty insane, but that makes sense. It's a placeholder name, and it's especially the people mover. You're right. That's that's just become the name. That's what people call. Yeah. Now, ETA people mover. I think is the formal name now, but they call it the people mover. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It turns out that uh, people apply those two specific names, which are, which where their genesis was placeholders, and they apply them to all kinds of things that uh, are not them at all. It's crazy. Absolutely, uh, we could we could sit obviously talking about attraction by attraction uh, all day, which we're, we're not going to do, unfortunately. Um, but the last one I do want to ask about because I know it was uh, you know you talk about the idea of being thrown something that you you never had done before and had to figure out how to do it. Uh, you put together the world's first tubular steel roller coaster in Matterhorn bobsleds with no formal training technically to make that happen. What was it like for you to put that attraction, which you know still exists today and still gets huge wait times, um, what was it like to put that attraction together? Well, that one started out with a quick little conversation where uh, Walt came over to the machine shop and... Uh, talked to my boss and I, and they showed me a model, a photograph of a model about maybe three feet tall, of kind of like a mound of, you know, mound of snow to me. But it was a, a model that Fred Jerger, his chief modeler, had built of the of a Matterhorn mountain in Switzerland. It had that, you know, it had that little hooky top on it. And uh, and he says, uh, Bobby, we're going to, uh, we're going to build a, um, a, uh, a, a, um, kind of a toboggan-like ride, uh, but we can't use snow. We're going to have to do it with uh, wheels. And um, so I want you to get started uh, uh, on a um, on laying out a track. We're got our, our company we work with, Aero Development, they're going to build the track, and they're going to build the cars, but we're going to have a little temporary car and uh, make it look like... Um, Look like one of these, um, you know, ice ice sleds. Um, and he says, oh, by the way, uh, you have to leave room in the mountain. We're going to have the sky ride go through it. So there's got to be a hole through it. And then just as he left, he says, oh, oh by the way, Bobby, uh, uh, put two tracks in there. <laughs> and then walked out. And, uh, I was, it was such a blizzard of, of things he wanted to see done. Um up to that time, roller coasters were usually made of wood, and they were outside where you could see everything. 
Now he wanted a roller coaster, not just one. He wanted two of them tightly wound inside of a mountain where you can't see the whole thing and leave room for a sky ride to go through it. And he'd already approved the model. He liked the looks of the model. <laughs> this was like so backwards uh, <laughs> to do something like that. Uh, and there was no time either. Um, so uh, very shortly, we did a little um, quick test track in the machine shop at uh, at Disney Studio in Burbank. And uh, to prove that a type of steel track, uh, like an angle iron track, which would be one step up from a, a wooden track, was just impractical. It would not work. And within a day or so, Aero Development called and said, the time is so short to for the opening day that Walt has selected. The only thing we can think of is to bend it up out of pipe. And because uh, the pipe is really cheap, we can get a lot of it. But there's no pipe benders like that. So we're going to invent a pipe bender, which they did. Very clever thing. So the use of pipe uh was because of time to shorten the time of manufacture and as it turned out we accidentally invented the pipe the um, steel pipe coaster we we did not set out to invent it we just were trying to from a pragmatic standpoint we got to make this opening day from from where we are at the moment so uh, then i went to work designing the course lines uh to, for these two tracks winding their way uh, inside this mountain, and I did that all on a drafting board with a pencil and a compass, no computer. But because I had to do calculations um, of the speed, uh, the changing speed every time you dip down, the changing speed and drag as you go around the corners, and the amount of bank you got to put in the corners, uh, it was quite a hornet's nest of um, doing a whole bunch of things all at the same time, and I needed to do a lot of calculations. And um, I had gotten an F in geometry in high school in 10th grade. Now I need a trigonometry right now. And I had a little itty bitty booklet that had charts about trigonometry. And it took about 15 minutes to look at it and say, oh, that's all there is to trig? And the teachers <laughs> take a semester to teach you that stuff? No, get this little booklet. It'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> so. <laughs> It was one of the fastest jobs I ever did, all but uh, pencil and paper. And uh, and then arrow, I, my drawings would go up there, and they would bend the pipe to fit my course line. And um, But they came up with a terrific invention. If you ever rode that Disney and Matterhorn, it had uh, little wheels at the top of the track, you know, the crest. Right. Because if a car went too slow, it would boost you over the hill. If it came up too fast, it would slow you down. It was one of the cleverest inventions. But that was sort of the insurance policy in case we made miscalculations as to the uh, neutral slope required on uh, roller coasters. And then the other thing I didn't want to tell Walt, I says, I hate him. I've never ridden one. I'm not going to ride one. And he told me to take my little boy down to Ocean Park. They got a roller coaster. Go down and ride it. I went down. I took her on a ride, came back, and I said, oh, yeah, Walt, I got it all researched. I know everything about them now. <laughs> Didn't like the idea of it. But when we got it partly finished, I, I took the first ride on it before the track was even finished. So um, so there we are. And then the Matterhorn people uh, started building pipe track, but they did it because now it's practical. They found out, oh, it's much, much better. And of course, with computers to doing roller coasters, 
look at all the roller coasters of every kind. Everybody can easily do uh, done done with all on a computer. Well, all of the uh, dynamic analysis is so easy to do for people nowadays. I don't know where it's all going to end. We're going to have the wildest uh, ones coming every year. And uh, the little old Matterhorn, 22 miles an hour, sitting there shaking and banging away in the dark. Uh, that that kind of started it. That yeah. was Walt's idea. Yeah, you were the pioneers to make it all possible today. You're right. It's I, I never thought about the fact that it didn't set out to make a steel roller coaster like that, but it just ended up being the most pragmatic, like you said, way to, to go about doing it. Now it's standard practice and all just building upon that, that first uh, design. Um, so moving more into modern times, I know, like we said, we could sit here talking all day about all the different creations at Disney, but then, like you said, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, you left Disney and you had the opportunity at that point to, or took the initiative at that point, I should say, to, to start another company. And through that, you worked on, you know, you said in the beginning, over 150 different projects beyond Disney, what are just a few of the things that people might recognize that you built, designed, worked on uh, at other places around the world? Well, the, um, immediately after uh, people knew that I wasn't uh, working for Disney anymore, uh, very shortly, we got a uh, request to think about a, a King Kong for Universal Studios. But as we were th- as they were thinking about the King Kong, they had a more immediate idea. They wanted to do the um, uh, Conan Swords and Sorcery show as a live action show, which required uh, a 24-foot fire-breathing dragon. And uh, at, at Disney, you know, we built, built things as big as an elephant, you know, outside, but not very sophisticated. We'd just do humans, you know. But a 24-foot fire-breathing dragon, I thought, oh, boy, I'd love to do that. And, of course, it fell in my lap to do it. And we did that for Universal, and it uh, worked very well. And then uh, they decided, well, we'd like to, we'd like to build a 30-foot-tall uh, animated King Kong. The job started and, uh, stopped and started several times over, of course, a couple of years, but uh, Finally, when they made the final decision to build a very expensive, for them anyway, uh, show show building with a very spectacular show on the inside, now we got a chance to design and uh, build this animated gorilla. Um, many people assume that when something gets bigger, it gets harder. No, it's the other way around. The, you have more relative space inside an animated figure, the bigger it gets inside. It's something that a lot of people don't quite grasp that, but it, but it, but it is real. Interesting. You got something here that weighs, uh, oh, say thirteen thousand pounds. It's got six hundred and sixty pounds of fur on it, and um, it has to be extremely believable because Universal they they love to take risk. They they if you remember what that ride was like, you're riding in a tram car and the gorilla's got a hold of the bridge and he's starting to shake it and he tips the bridge down. And the, and the tram car slides about three feet sideways. And uh, if you were in the third third seat of the third car, you're about three feet from King Kong's mouth and he's breathing banana breath right in your face. Um, I mean, that gets your attention. It sure does. <laughs> and, 
and and the fact that the machine, in my opinion, was a very very easy machine to design, build, and install. In fact, the first day we took the first half of the body frame and everything down there by a lunchtime, we had it all installed. Because um, you know, there's a simple way you can design and, and build stuff. Um, it was a glorious looking figure. It startled people because you know people are not used to something that size that close. But Universal was right. They love to do dramatic stuff, and they uh, they got away with it very nicely. Of course, you know, a couple of years later, I designed two more gorillas. One had a 55-foot wing spread uh, across the hands, and it was 42 feet tall, uh, you know, quite around a 30-footer. And then in later years, I did design a Godzilla creature for a movie. It was also 30-foot tall, so... Um, yeah, I love those jobs where there was uh, there were big things that were risky to everybody else, but they sure weren't risky to me because it's there's pra- there's pragmatic ways to do uh, big stuff like that. You know, even up to the one of the last ones I did was in uh, opened in ninety ninety three in Las Vegas, a sinking ship. Who in the world would risk making a ship move one hundred and eighty feet around a, a a curve with two different radii, have it get in a fight? Take a hit, the mass mass crash, and then it goes underwater and it puts the fire out. I mean, this is outrageous. There were companies that I learned later. They said, "Oh, Steve Wynn, don't do that. That is way that's that's too much. Too much weight. of water, fire, live action, um, explosions. No, no, no." But it turned out uh, the Technifex company with two uh, two friends of mine that were ex Disney guys. Well, we we put it together. And involved a lot of people, you know, it was a risky looking job, but on a day by day basis, it was it was very straightforward work. But you can't explain it that way to people. No, of course not. You need to talk about the complexities. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, another type of job. Um, uh, I didn't know much about rock and roll. And there was this this kid that just got his hair burnt in a Pepsi Cola commercial. The kid was his name was uh, Michael Jackson. Right. He had some brothers and he, he wanted to come over to a shop where I was working because uh, he likes uh, to see how animated uh, uh, animation, animation, animated figures are working. So we showed him. Uh, he came over, I showed him around for about two hours. And then at the end of the two hours, uh, he says, uh, can you do lighting for my new rock and roll show? And I sarcastically said, well, just get up in the front of the room here and dance a few bars. I'll see if I can figure out what it is you want. <laughs> and I remember his people who took a deep breath and what did this old man say to Michael? <laughs> but the funny thing was, funny thing, it started a conversation. Because it indicated to him, I would I would uh, respond to your question, even though I am not in your line of work. You see, there's a critical thing in, in life on any kind of work that people are asked to do. Don't ever say no. Say yes. And then see how the conversation goes. And you might be invited to do some uh, just earth-shaking stuff you never thought about, but you'll never do it if you back off and say no. So that was that was a big lesson, uh, uh, along with some of the other lessons were the same. But Michael Michael is a very good one uh, to um, be. You know, the guy was I'm twice as old as he is. I'm I'm not in his line of work, but um, in about nine weeks we did about a, a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar job, and it, were, it went out 
27 different venues for 1984, and he was tickled pink with it. And I got a chance to meet people doing all other kinds of work that I, I never knew anything about, lighting, audio, overhead trusses, all that kind of stuff, music, dancing. I, I learned a ton. I would have never learned anything in college, any college that I learned uh, working with Michael Jackson for for a bunch of months. Yeah, and things you could learn in school, you could learn in 15 minutes of, of trigonometry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so thinking now past that time, I know in, uh, 1989, you received or were honored with, I should say a, a lifetime achievement award with the, uh, themed entertainment association. And that you also were on, um, or maybe still are on the, the judging committee looking at the designs for, uh, some more some attractions that have been designed since then, are there any in particular looking at the theme park landscape today that impresses you as, or just kind of when you first saw it, just blew you away and, and thought, got you thinking about how they created it or designed it? Well, this has been, uh, when I was given that, um, that award, the Themed Entertainment Association, uh, it was a nice, big, beautiful uh, banquet. You know, Beverly Hills Hotel. We're all in the tuxedos. Everybody, you know, it's just great, great big show. And then this lady quietly pulled me aside and says, "Oh, Bob, they forgot to tell you, you are on the awards committee the rest of your life." <laughs> <laughs> and I've what been on twenty-one years. Twenty-one years now. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out. Um, what a wonderful position we have a we have a secret committee uh we have probably uh oh, 25 people they kind of come and go because they're all industry leaders they're busy all the time but we meet uh seven or eight weeks uh every fall and we have to reduce about 180 nominations down to about 15 or 16. It is so much work going through all of the nominations of, of all of the wonderful new creations every year in every category. So this little handful of a couple of dozen people, we have access to everyone's design and we have access to all the people they used, everything they invented, what their patents are and what everything cost. Wow. And we are dead and we are dead silent. Uh, it, we have to be scrupulously silent in this in this industry. So I thought, well, that's not a bad assignment the rest of my life. <laughs> Work on that committee. But boy, does it ever give me a perspective of the absolute brilliant inventing of not only the systems that are electronic, mechanical, uh, all kinds of stuff to do with imagery creation of every kind, a uh, tremendous amount of work that people do, uh, story writing, uh, visualizations for uh, shows, sometimes small shows that are very important in a small community, other shows that are vast, great, big spectaculars, particularly in China. A lot of times today people will look and say, oh, China's a bad deal. All they do is make cheap Chinese products for Walmart, and then they, their, their minds close off and they don't even think about China. If, if Americans knew how many theme parks have been built and how many are being built by the dozens, and they're way bigger than, than Disneyland's, 
uh, way more people, way more attractions. These things are so spectacular and they're so well done. And of course, a lot of them use, um, uh, you know, vendors at every capacity from all countries all over the world. You know, a lot of Americans uh, design stuff in China now because uh, they have specialties that the, these Chinese developers can use. But that leads to the artistic design of a show. There are some people who can visualize show from the show standpoint, people being a showman. And I see that today in China so skillfully, and it reminds me so much of what a showman Walt was. Walt could see the elements in his mind and had the, the dream part of want to do it, but he would had the pragmatic side that said, well, we won't do anything unless we can figure out uh, very practical uh, ways to do it. And still today, that's that's still the way it works. You have these great dreamers in these other countries, and by golly, they they find a way to um, actually build it and operate it and attract people by the millions. A lot of America doesn't get to see that, but boy, I see it every year in this in this uh, seven eight weeks of committee work. That's so cool that you get to see all of that. I'm a little jealous, but, <laughs> but uh, of course, I'll get to see <laughs> well, it all when it comes be. out. <laughs> all right. Um, so looking at just a, you know, a few more questions sort of in retrospect and looking at the way things are today, um, I know that you're still local to, or fairly local to Disneyland. Um, and I've seen you on Instagram and Facebook and elsewhere. I know you still occasionally will, will go to visit Disneyland. Um, and since working there, you received the Disney Legend Award. You have a window on Main Street. Um, you know, how does it feel walking through Disneyland today? And not just so much from the perspective of being a legend and having the the window on Main Street, but seeing all the change that has happened over the last you know, 60 years of the park's history? Well, that's a complicated emotional question. Um, um, let me put it this way. Um, that was the part that Walt's footprints were in. And up through about, I'd say, 2015, uh, much of the park was still Walt's Park. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. Walt's Park, particularly, let's say, uh, the big variety between you know the Frontierland, Disneyland, uh, you know Main Street, Fantasyland, all that. But let's say the northwest corner of the park was sort of the quiet Americana. You know, we had a canoe ride there for for a while. We had a nice quiet little corner with a you know more modern attraction you know like a little poo ride um we had some big trees we had a river boat out there we had a uh, a little granny's cabin uh we had a great barbecue restaurant outdoors a little another place we could have all kinds of events a year and it was so so americana in a way and then uh came a period of time uh, under what i'll say quote unquote new management um, to continue expansions of the park. Well, um, the expansions kind of went from a beautiful Americana, peaceful park that was Walt's ideas, 
um, to something that represents, um, you know, an, a sort of an alien space place with a lot of rock and stuff um, would would have been good to be, you know, like, um, you know, closer to a Tomorrowland or maybe uh, down the street a little bit through, uh, you know, the DCA uh, park. Uh, you know, we've got Marvel, we got Pixel, all kinds of stuff down there. You can, you can just do anything you want right and left. But I, it was to me, it's kind of treading on Walt's toes and treading on his history. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Um, so uh, I do have uh, very mixed emotions about Disneyland. But uh, but then if you know if you ask me about Walt Disney World, I'd say, uh, yep, the Magic Kingdom still stands alive there, just the way it was. Still very very much uh, with the original ideas of the Magic Kingdom. Uh, of course, we've got uh, you know the Ep- Epcot, Animal Kingdom, uh, studio uh, tour stuff, which is you know is great for new stuff to do with outer outer space and rocks. Um, and Epcot uh, has always been a strange spot. It was a thing that was Wall Stream, and we lived Wall Stream, and it never turned out that way. It turned out to be something else. But over the intervening years, particularly the last decade, we have fans that come to Epcot knowing nothing about Walt's idea for Epcot. They see it as, wow, this is a nice place. We like it. And so the company's uh, spending a ton of money redoing a lot of Epcot into a different kind of of, of park. Yes, it's going to be futuristic, but it's going to be so today living-like. It's, it's going to be a glorious place as it evolves in the next uh, decade or so. But Disneyland, up to 2015, uh, my personal touch with Walt is in that park. And um, I walked away in July of uh, 2015. I haven't been back because I don't want to have uh, more current memories um getting confused with the good solid memories of Walt in that park that I have. And I want to retain those for the rest of my days uninterfered with. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, you're in the unique position of, of knowing Walt that closely. And, uh, I could see it would almost like be, you know, walking into the house you grew up in and it being a totally different place. And you wouldn't want to, taint the the memories and the history that uh that was there um so i could easily see that being a a mixed emotion to your point of uh not wanting to to mess with those the early fond memories that um were in that place yeah um it's it's illustrated by the simple word that bob dylan wrote he said don't look back that's right it's an excellent quote (laughs) um so as we wrap up here, uh, you know, like I said, I could I could chat with you all day uh, about this subject and, and every other subject with Disney and elsewhere. Um, I know that there are a lot of uh, listeners who aspire to be Walt Disney Imagineers. I know we're now in the, the third generation of, of Walt Disney Imagineers, and those who are listening will either be in the tail end of that third generation or perhaps even the fourth generation of Walt Disney Imagineers. And I know times have changed a bit since you were at Wet Enterprises and, and then Walt Disney Imagineering. But what advice would you offer to someone who is listening who does aspire to one day work behind those doors uh, on Flower Streets to be a Walt Disney Imagineer? 
I get this uh, question all the time. Obviously, I meet literally hundreds of people a year everywhere, and they've always got uh, youngsters with them, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years old, maybe 17 years old, gals and guys. Um, So I get the the parental question all the time. In a general sense, uh, to be realistic, um, I sarcastically... um, uh, I look at the child that uh, is, wants to be the imaginary, and I give him a little sarcastic barb from Uncle Bob here. I says, well, you have to choose your parents very carefully because you want the de- – no, seriously, you you want to gather up the best DNA you can get that you can, with your work, use very, very well. Of course, the eyebrows on the parents shoot right straight up, and usually the kid the kid gets my point in an instant. And then I say that uh, with that in mind, uh, you have to be totally curious. Now you might not be born totally curious, but you can learn, you can work at that. And then they say, "Well, give me an example." And I say, "Well, it's a simple thing. If if you were to as much as you can." explore every subject in every area that you know absolutely nothing about and are not interested in. And you do that for many, many years. By the time you're 17, 18, 19 years old and somebody's asking you to do something that's interesting, you will have so many ideas immediately that have been in your brain because you've been collecting them all those years. And you will immediately get in a conversation with somebody about a wide variety of subjects that you you thought were worthless, that you don't know how you're ever going to use them, and then you surprise yourself. By golly, it was sure worth learning all this extra stuff because of this characteristic of curiosity. Now, you compare that with a student that um, is very very high-tech in the sixth grade. They got their own smartphone. They know how computers work. They know how to bypass parental controls and all that sort of stuff. And guess what they do? They they text and party all through high school, and by the time they graduate from high school, they know almost nothing about the world and its history and its realities. But boy, do they know everything on social media with information going right and left, back and forth, none of it uh, being uh, useful for what you need to do for the rest of your life. That's a gigantic contrast. And you have to have the judgment as you're growing up to have some wisdom that you got to create for yourself through that curiosity of the, the day that you want to send a resume over to Imagineering, you will have some very intelligent things you can share with them that why you are needed at the Imagineering that you can bring skills to them to help them not walk up to them and say, I've always wanted to be an Imagineer. What do I need to do now? And it's too late. This is a very serious a serious of, uh, approach and very serious uh, subject. But the ones that have thought about it, th- they will get uh, get attention eventually uh, from Imagineering if you uh, just keep bothering them until they see that you are really, really serious. But you never can go to a company like Imagineering says, Oh, I need a job. Oh, I love being an idea of being an Imagineer. Well, little girl, being an Imagineer is one thing, but doing Imagineering work is where it really is. 
And if you want to know how hard this is, you just go get your parents to get you on Disney Plus and you watch those six episodes of the Imagineers and you'll see how hard work this is to try to make a, a dream work. Great advice. Very pragmatic. And you're right. It is. It's blunt with a purpose. You, it, it's not easy. And you're right. It's. I, I, by the way, I loved watching you on episode one of the Imagineering story, and then every the other episodes as well on that subject. But uh, yeah, that's really great advice to to offer to anyone. And of course, we have to take that very seriously because it's something that getting asked about all the time. You you know it, and you you uh, you definitely have the. Um, the history to to be able to offer that advice. Um, so right now, I know that you are keeping yourself very busy, which I admire. It's I think a secret to life to never sit down and and uh, rest where you are, but to keep moving. I almost just I was about to quote, "Oh, keep keep moving forward," um, but to keep keep yourself active. And one of the things you are doing is hosting Walt Lands, which is a Walt Disney history tour out in Los Angeles. Um, I guess for those who might be interested, can you talk a little bit more about what that tour is and when it's offered and where people can go to sign up for it? Yes, I've been doing this for uh, four years with my uh, business manager. He had an idea to do it a tour like this. And of course I told him, I says, well, for about 17 years, I was taking family and friends going to almost exactly these same places. So it was very easy to uh, uh, figure out uh, all the logistics of a tour and how it might uh, do it and what all it might encompass. Um, a lot of people are fans of Disney as a large thing, a big company. It's, gets into movies, TV, etc., cetera, uh, fashion projects and stuff, then theme parks. And then when it gets into theme parks, it gets into Disneyland specific. And then it goes deeper into Walt Disney and his life specific. That's the fan that loves to, to ride the bus with me uh, the third Sunday of every month. So my focus is um, taking people with this bus to uh, all the different locations uh, in Walt's life. For example, it's in a small area. It's only a Silver Lake, Glendale, Burbank part of the Los Angeles area. Uh, we start in a central area with a parking lot. We make this little tour, it's five hours. We have a box lunch in the middle of it. And we uh, stop uh, and look at about uh, 17 different uh, things to do with uh, Walt's uh, family life. Uh, we get out of the bus, we go walking and looking at the two houses that he and his brother Roy uh, built. They're like a prefab house. They put it all together and they built themselves a couple of homes. And there's a high school where one of the presidents of the Disney uh, came from. And we went to the Hyperion Studios where it used to be. And that's where Snow White was born. We go to the Merry Ground where Walt took his daughters and... Um, and uh, got some of the first ideas of an amusement park that would be clean that he could take them to, and, you know, in the late 1930s. We go to Walt's Barn, which uh, used to uh, be in his backyard and in the Holmby Hills uh, estate. Uh, we go over to uh, the creative campus area of uh, where, where the old wet enterprise is, and then we wind up at the studio to sort of look through the fence at the uh, Courtyard of Legends. So it's 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 uh it's a five hour busy day um 
Well, I'm doing one this coming Sunday in January, of all things. We've got a 100% filled bus, a 48-passenger bus. You know, it's got a restroom, got a sound system and television in it. And uh, Ernie, my manager, uh, has created um, little short video clips that we play on the road between the stops. And then um, in between the video clips, I uh, explain more things to people. We get out, walk around, look at things. Answer a lot of questions. <clears throat> so yeah, it's it's a busy day, but I love doing it. When I see people, they know everything about Disney as a company. They know everything about Disneyland. They know a lot about Walt, but boy, do they want to know a lot more about Walt, and they want to go literally see and touch the places where he was so creative in his in his early life. And the other funny thing is. I grew up in the same area at the same time as Walt's daughters. I rode the same merry-go-round in the same years. When I was 18 months old, I lived just two blocks down the street from where Walt lived, up on on a hill. Um, the, we would go by uh, uh, an airport, the Grand Central Air Terminal, which Disney operated for a long time. They restored it some years ago. Uh, I helped with a little bit of the restoration of it. My office was there my last year at Disneyland or working for Disney. And when I was six, seven, eight years old, we lived near that airport and I used to hang out in that same building. So there's two stories we tell. We tell the story of Walt and his family growing up in the area. And I can tell the same story doing literally the same things in the same places exactly uh, as uh, uh, my parents did. So it. It's a fun day for me because I love to see people learn more about Walt, but at the same time, there's an eerie epiphany of when I'm riding this brand new bus and I'm seeing the stuff I grew up with as a small child. It just it just makes my Sunday a month just so neat. And then we go to Walt's barn and then we spend an hour there and then I can walk in that barn and I see the furniture that Walt built by his own hands. I see little display cases with Walt's own hand tools, things like that. So these connections um, are, are so are so vivid, and I love to share them. Well, sign me up next time I'm <laughs> I'm out in LA. Uh, I will definitely be going uh, to do that tour. Uh, and I know that anyone who's interested can go to waltland.com to learn more about that. Um, and on the subject of things that you're still doing, I know that you also have a, a new book out, which is actually sitting on my desk and I still have to finish. Uh, but <laughs> could you talk a little bit about your book? Yes, what a lot of people don't know, I started writing books when I was 19 years old about uh, automobile design. I, I did uh, several of those. And then uh, about eight years ago, I did uh, self-published a uh, book um, about uh, design just for fun. And it was a book that I printed uh, 2,000 of them. I sold them out of my house. And uh, they now are such a... Um, uh, a collector's item. Uh, they never sell used for under under about six hundred dollars, and a couple of the best ones are get offered for two thousand three hundred dollars. This is that's ridiculous for a book that already was expensive at fifty eight ninety five. Unbelievable. So um, yeah, too bad I never shared in the appreciation. I got the fifty eight ninety five, but <laughs> the people are selling for that high price. They're making the money out of it. Uh, but I hope they read them. 
the new book is only uh, twenty one ninety five, uh, you know, plus uh, tax and shipping on Amazon. You can also buy it on uh, Kindle on an e-reader. I think it's a if you buy the book. Uh, what a lot of people do, they buy the hard copy book, and then for a buck ninety nine, you get the um, e-reader version. And a lot of people like to lay in bed at night and and re- and read it on their smartphone, and then keep the book real pristine. And sometimes people they'll show up and uh, at some place where I am, and it's oh, I bought it on Amazon. Can you sign this for me? You know, and then they show me how precious it is because no, they they read it on their phone. <laughs> so. Um, that one is price protected. Obviously, uh, that was not nobody is ever uh, going to have to have price appreciation on that. It's there forever for twenty one ninety five on uh, on Amazon. Fantastic. And speaking of signing things, the last thing I want to talk about uh, that you're doing is people can also occasionally get um, some signed uh, merchandise and memorabilia from you. And I believe that's at fandomproductions.com or where can people go? Yeah. That, yeah. That's, uh, that's my manager. That's a uh, fandom productions. Uh, they always carry, uh, you know, different things for sale and they, they're always coming up with new ideas for, you know, new pins and post people seem to like posters. They, uh, they do very well. In fact, um, uh, uh, in the parking lot on the third Sunday of every month, we uh, Ernie comes out early and we set up a tent. And we set up tables and music, historic Disney music, and people uh, have about an hour there to uh, uh, buy whatever they would like, and then we can get them all signed by the time we get on get on the bus to go go for the bus ride. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, pe- people enjoy uh, you know, shall I politely say, Bob Gurr merchandise. It's kind of startling. It's kind of startling to be um, wind up with this sort of career number four or five here that uh, I have Bob Gurr products being sold. It's kind of it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's a, it's all very well deserved from those two hundred fifty plus right. projects that you worked on. But um, well, I'll yeah. you know, obviously be sure to plug all of that uh, in the show notes um, on the air and uh, across social media. Yeah. As well. But, yeah. You ask about uh, being Billy. Last thing I'd share with you is oh, yeah, yeah. somebody talked somebody talked me into a design job after twenty years. When I walked away from design twenty years ago, I vowed I am done. I am not going to design anything ever again. I'm just going to finally travel, and you know, which I've been doing forty three sea cruises, all kinds of adventures. But a company uh, in Celebration, Florida. Uh, rents uh, mobility scooters to uh, handicap guests to uh, enjoy the parks. It's a pretty big operation, and the man has a dream of having a much more advanced, useful type of scooter that's deliberately designed for theme parks uh, more directly than the regular type that so many companies make. And um, made me quite an offer uh, that if I would uh, take over uh, the design of this brand new uh, vehicle, and of course uh, I said yes. So um, uh, I started that job in uh, end of October, and uh, just back yes, just yesterday we had the uh, final meeting. We were turning over all the engineering documents, and they're getting ready to start to build the first article prototype. And uh, that'll be followed up with some more that'll be out for tests. And then that will be followed by uh, production of a three-wheeled version. And then uh, later, late next year, a four-wheeled version that are slanted. First, it's designed for the Magic Kingdom. 
I was down there and I, and we went out with five scooters for the day, researching the do's and the don'ts and the needs and everything of people. And, uh, boy, I was impressed with this whole need for mobility scooters that are, that are done in a, in a certain way. And of course this guy, uh, he said, well, Bob, you know, you designed all this stuff and it all looks good and it works good. What you should do a scooter for people. You're old enough to ride a scooter. <laughs> so, okay yeah so um i've got I'm, I'm as we talk i've got the chassis of the scooter right here in my office and i got a table full of parts and and i got a cad system going here and uh, doing all the cad design on it but uh i've designed from the standpoint that the day i get old enough you know i'm only 88 now but i get old enough to have a scooter i'm designing the one i want so, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a neat project, but I, I just can't believe that I've said yes to a design job after doing nothing for of design for 20 years. But I guess, I guess, you know, once you're, once you're a designer, you're a designer forever. You're never going to stop. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the final design because you're right. There's not been a scooter created specifically for theme parks, but there's a high need for it. So uh, I'm very confident in what you're going to put together. So, um, Bob, thank you on behalf of myself and just everybody listening for taking the time to chat with me and share all these stories um, with all of us who are huge Disney fans, huge fans of your work and, and your career. And um, I have really sincerely enjoyed uh, having the chance to chat with you today. So thanks for taking the time out. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. Anytime I run across people that uh, they love Walt and they have some a good line of questions and, uh, you know, intelligently asked, uh, I don't mind spending the time, uh, you know, to have a more, uh, you know, more expanded answers for folks. Well, I certainly appreciate it. So thanks again, Bob. All right. Okay, Matt. My pleasure. Bye-bye. With that, we close out episode 67 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you once again to Bob Gurr for coming on to this podcast episode to share so many stories about his time working at Disneyland, working with Walt Disney, working on attractions for even Walt Disney World, and then beyond Disney, everything that he has done, he has created countless attractions, classic attractions that we know and love to this very day. And it was such an amazing honor as a lifelong Disney fan to have the chance to chat with him. And that's thanks to all of you who are listening to this podcast for helping to make that happen. And a very special thanks to Ernie, his agent as well, for helping to organize this podcast episode. Of course, as we talked about at the end of the episode, I would encourage you to learn more about Bob's tour around Los Angeles by going to waltzland.com, all one word and spelled exactly like it sounds, waltzland.com. Bob takes you on a tour around several locations throughout Los Angeles to learn more about Disney history. And it's incredible to have that tour by someone who was there and who knew Walt directly. I mean, what better way to get toured around Los Angeles? I'm signing up the next time I go to LA and I'm sure to share that with all of you on social media 
and beyond. I would also encourage you to go to fandomproductions.com where you can purchase merchandise and posters that are actually signed by Bob. So if you are a huge fan of Walt Disney Imagineering or the Walt Disney Company, or more specifically, Bob Gurr, definitely check out fandomproductions.com where you can get a signed piece of the magic from Bob and perhaps keep that as a keepsake on your desk or somewhere in your home or office. Uh, I am, of course, looking forward to purchasing one of those myself to get a signed piece of the magic from Bob. And be sure to check out his new book as well called Bob Gurr, Legendary Imagineer. I will leave the links to that. Of course, you can find it on Amazon, but I'll leave the links to his book, to Waltland, and to Fandom Productions in the show notes below so you can check that all out. And of course, I'd love to turn the conversation over to you who's listening out there of all the creations, the 250 plus projects that Bob Gurr has worked on at Disneyland or Walt Disney World or even beyond that. What is your favorite? You can send me your feedback and answers in many different ways. I would encourage you to post about it on Facebook or Instagram or in an Instagram or Facebook story or on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me so I can see it and engage back with you. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Imagineer Podcast. You can also find me, by the way, on TikTok at Imagineer Podcast in case you want to share a video message with me. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Imagineer News. And if you'd like to chat about Bob Gurr and other Disney subjects, not just with me, but with other members of the community, I would encourage you to head to Facebook and type into your search bar Imagination or Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community to join our Facebook group and have the chance to converse with others in the Imagineer Podcast community about all things Disney. You can also find that by going to our Facebook page at Imagineer Podcast, click on the Groups tab, and that will take you over to the Imagination. You can also send me an email at imagineerpodcast at gmail.com, or if you'd like to leave a voicemail, just dial 516-406-8376, and perhaps I'll share your message on a future episode of Imagineer Podcast. If you don't already subscribe to the show, I hope you'll hit that subscribe button. Whether you're listening in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcast app, hitting the subscribe button, make sure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And one of the best things you could do for Imagineer Podcast is to leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. I have about 255 star reviews at this point, which is so incredible. I am so grateful to all of you who have continued to rate and review the show. There's been a lot of you this year, and I encourage you, if you haven't yet, to leave your thoughts and feedback over in Apple Podcasts in a rating and review. It takes less than the time it takes to watch a TikTok video uh, to leave a rating and a review and does so much to help this community out. But what does even more and takes even less time than that is just to share the podcast. Whether you share out your favorite episode or the podcast as a whole or any of our posts in social media, on any social media channel, whatever you prefer, or even if you talk to your friends directly about Imagine Your Podcast, spreading the word does so much to help to build this community and it's been growing really quickly. And I have to thank all of you for building this community of positivity Uh, It's just been such a rewarding part of hosting this show, and uh, I'm so grateful to all of you who continue to share 
each and every podcast episode. Of course, I would also encourage you, if you want to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, to check out the Imagineer Society over at patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. Essentially, you go to help to support the show financially, to help to support our show-related expenses, uh, to help host our podcast, and for all the equipment and anything else related to the show. You basically help to keep the lights on and in return get some exclusive perks and benefits, things like early access to every podcast episode before it goes live to the public, uh, bonus podcast episodes, a private Facebook group, my close friends list on Instagram, and so much more, even monthly video calls where we get to chat in an intimate setting about all things Disney. So you can learn more about that by heading to patreon.com slash Podcast, And be sure to check out our partners. First, The Kingdom Insider. Christy over at The Kingdom Insider has so much information and knowledge to share about all things Disney as well. She lives close to the magic, so she gets over to Walt Disney World very frequently, and even to Disneyland and Disney Cruise Line and other Disney destinations, and shares some amazing tips, and even gets to go to some media events for Disney. And so I I would encourage you to follow her at The Kingdom Insider over at any social media channel or at thekingdominsider.com. And if you're looking to book a vacation to Walt Disney World or Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Aulani, Adventures by Disney, or any other Disney destination around the world, I encourage you to head to Academy Travel. By clicking on any of the links in the show notes below, you can request a free quote to any of the destinations I mentioned. And Academy Travel has been helping to plan Disney vacations for 25 years. They are diamond earmarked, which is the highest distinction that Disney bestows upon travel agencies because they recognize the level of service that Academy Travel offers to all of you. What's incredible is it's all free to you. And for those of you who are wondering why it's free, essentially Disney pays Academy Travel rather than you paying Academy Travel whenever they book a vacation. And in fact, they can even help to save you money on a future Disney vacation. So head to Academy Travel on social media, or again, click on any of the links in the show notes below to request a free quotes to any of the Disney destinations around the world. Lastly, and most importantly, I would encourage you to do whatever it is you love, to go after your dreams, whatever they are. I think Bob offered some really incredible advice if you are looking to become a Walt Disney Imagineer, but even if you're looking to do something completely different, I hope you're taking that very first step today. There's no better day than today to take that first step to go after your dreams, whatever it is that makes you happy and that you feel most passionate about. And remember, as always, that quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. engineers agree that a monorail system could well be an answer to growing traffic congestion. In large cities where land is at a premium, an aerial monorail system needs only a narrow beamway supported by pylons. The accent is on economy. With the advent of such highways in the sky, 
the weary commuter will find himself traveling in speed, comfort, and safety. Tomorrow's living areas will expand as the beamways of modern monorail systems begin to crisscross metropolitan centers. is tomorrow. In Disneyland, a monorail system is being put into operation, and the future in transportation can be enjoyed today. <laughs>